guys, welcome back again to a Life Education Podcast. It's myself and Caroline here with Andrew Hallam. Um, Andrew is the author of a couple of books. One we're going to talk about is The Millionaire Expat, which we have here, um, which we'll get to again. Um, Andrew, do you want to introduce yourself to kind of talk about your story, um, originally from Canada and how you started traveling after your time in Singapore? And then we'll just, we'll just pick it from there. Sure, I'm a, a financial journalist and uh, a teacher. So I taught at Singapore American School, where I taught English, high school English, and high school personal finance. Then 2014, my wife said, let's take a break. So we took a year off, which led to two, which led to three, which led to four. We're into our fifth year off now. And as she likes to say, I, as I like to say, <laughs> I think I've tasted the nectar <laughs> and we're really enjoying floating around. So as soon as we left Singapore, we thought we wanted to do something epic, something that we would really enjoy. So we, we have a tandem bicycle and we've taken this tandem all over the place. Like we've cycled Borneo. Um, we've done pieces of um, Thailand, northern Thailand is incredible and it's arduous. It's really tough. Yeah. We've taken it to Cuba uh, we've taken it to Indonesia. We've cycled around Lombok with this thing. And we thought, well, let's do the like, Camino de Santiago and just take our bike. So we took the tandem across Spain. Wow. And then we ended up going to Western Canada. So we flew to Calgary. And then we cycled from Calgary through the Rockies to Victoria, British Columbia. And from there, we figured this is great. We're really enjoying this. Let's put the bike and storage for a little bit and do something entirely different so we flew to mexico we stayed there for a few months we rented a place and then we went to asia and we started renting places in different parts of asia so northern thailand um, we lived on an island in malaysia it was uh, it's called pulau tioman and we stayed there for a month and it's just this most i the most idyllic place at least for me anyway and for Pelle, she loves it as well. Should we swap lives? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can I have yours? That sounds amazing. Yeah, we've just been doing much more of this sort of this sort of thing and mm-hmm. mixing things up as well. So we went back to the tandem. And we cycled around Europe. So we did big loop sort of from Germany and then France and Switzerland, and we ended up going down into Croatia. Uh, we just had a super time. Yeah. Um, you don't want me to keep talking about this, do you? Cause yeah, I, I, well, like you're <laughs> making me very jealous. Yeah. Right? Okay. Okay. Let's let's get let's get to, to the reality parts. It might not make you jealous. Yeah. I'm not sure. It depends on how okay. you how you roll. Yeah. We live in a van. Currently. Yeah. Yeah, but vans are amazing. I lived in an RV for like a very small, minute piece of time. Ten days. It was amazing. It's beautiful. It's very <laughs> oh, ten freeing. Days. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we've been in that in a van twelve months, <laughs> wow. and we haven't killed each other. Yeah, which is great. We it's almost bonus, did yeah. once, but we're good. Right. It only takes once, so doesn't it? Yeah. Accidentally. Yeah. <laughs> Oops, I ran you over. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we get along really well. Yeah. Yeah. So wh- you got it. Where's the van now? We stored it in um, Ahihik, Mexico. So our intention was to drive this thing through the United States and down the Baja Peninsula, which we did, and then into Mexico. So we spent seven months exploring Mexico. And then we went into uh, Belize, um, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador. And the intention was to take it all the way down to Argentina. We have to ship it around the Darien Gap to Colombia and then continue our drive. But when we got to Nicaragua... There's a civil war in Nicaragua at the moment, Nicaragua. So we turned around 
and then we parked it and stored it for five weeks so that I could do a series of talks here and in Asia. So it's been really busy. So we flew to Singapore. Um, I gave some talks in Singapore. And then we flew to Jakarta, and I gave talks in Jakarta. We came back to Singapore, then here, did some talks in Abu Dhabi, radio shows here and such. Uh, we fly back to Singapore tonight. So I do a series of talks uh, in Singapore. Then we go to Bali, right. where I continue that. More talks. Then uh, Vietnam. So we'll be, at, uh, we'll be in Saigon. Wow. And then after that's done, deep breath. Yeah. <laughs> Take off the shirt. Keep on the shorts. Don't put another pair of pants on again for another five months. Yeah. Amazing. And, and back to the van. <laughs> amazing. That sounds amazing. Okay. So for people who don't know you so well, what are the talks that you give about? They're obviously about personal finance. So maybe you can explain that a little bit more. Yeah. It's really about um, like appropriate investing for your future mm-hmm. and recognizing that each of us is a custodian for an older person inside us. Yeah. You said that yeah. because we were at a, one of your talks the other evening and that was actually one thing that I really... I've actually hit home quite quite straightforward mm. in all senses of, of how you prepare for your future, whether it's financial or health. Right. Is that we are the keepers of an older person inside right. us. Right. Yeah, we want that older person to have a good life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I certainly do. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so you woke me up to that. But, I mean, it's part, of, it's part of holistic health. I don't think that we are healthy if we're not sleeping well, if we're not eating well if we're not exercising well and we're not healthy if we're not financially able to dig our way out of debt and make good long-term plans for the future. So I think the two, though, the discipline to do one carries over really nicely in terms of the other. Mm -hmm. So physical health and financial health, the ability to harness both or the ability to achieve both uh, requires the same set of skills. Because it is thinking about deferred gratification. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's for a lot of people, they would rather sit on the couch and, and, and do nothing while watching Netflix all day than yeah, go to the gym. Or online shopping. Yeah. Right? And there's that physical aspect. And then mm-hmm. there's the, the shopping, the immediate gratification of just going out and doing the shopping. But what's really interesting is, and especially when it comes to like the acquisition of material things, is that when we look at studies on happiness... And that's really what it boils down to, right? What, what makes us fulfilled as human beings? When we look at studies on happiness, happiness doesn't come from material acquisitions at all. It's fascinating that people study happiness. I yeah. mean, there are university professors mm. that well, spend full time studying this. Of course. This. The Harvard professor who, who has the largest uh, class enrollment is on happiness. I can't remember his name, but we had somebody else come in and talk about that in particular. So it was a... It was an interesting point, but you're right. It's mostly experiences, family, like friends that you have as opposed to. It's your relationships. Yeah. And that's it. So it's the relationships you have with your friends, your family, your experiences, and the relationship you have with yourself. That's a really big, important aspect. So looking after your financial health goes a long way towards added levels of contentment and happiness. We do know one thing about the acquisition of money is that greater wealth doesn't necessarily uh, increase a person's level of happiness. Up to a point it does, and then it levels off. And that point isn't that high. Mm -hmm. But one thing we do know is that debt equals misery. Mm. So when we look at debts, debts actually add levels of stress, which draw people down. 
And so ultimately we want to make sure that we get out of debt and then if we do have debt and then try to build financial assets, as I mentioned, for that older person inside us. Yeah, so as an expat who is living the life here and now, just left their old life back home, moved out, lots of tempting instant gratification things here. Um, I'm not sure what it's like in Singapore, but I imagine it's a similar, similar kind of culture. What advice would you have for expats who haven't really thought about it, the future future, like the long term, the older person inside them from a financial perspective? I would take a really deep breath and and look around and recognize that the norm isn't exactly healthy. And it's much the same for physical fitness. If we look at the normal person, the average person, the cross-section of the typical 30 and 40-year-old, the typical person is not fit. The typical person is not mm-hmm. healthy. And so if you're in this... Um, you're in the profession of sort of physical fitness and health, you're going to be surrounding yourselves with people who generally are physically fit and healthy, at least in the professional realm. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to be working with people who are ambitious in that realm in terms of they want to make improvements in that capacity. Mm. So you've surrounded yourself with a healthy tribe. But when we talk about the financial aspect of it, we don't surround ourselves necessarily with a healthy tribe our norm becomes the norm of the people around us. And the norm uh, isn't sustainable in terms of uh, level of uh, financial wellness. And so this is the tough part. It's to recognize who you are as a person and who you want to be as a person and recognize that the people around you shouldn't be affecting the decisions that you make. So just because everybody lives a certain way doesn't necessarily mean that you have to because while that might be normal especially in a culture that has high materialistic wants and needs is is driven a little bit by like a bit of a hedonistic type value system Mm. especially those sorts of cultures can become really damaging to our future selves so we have to set our own patterns and recognize that to borrow a phrase from a friend of mine um, we can afford anything but we can't afford everything And so, yeah, you can afford to go out at certain nights with your friends, but you can't always be doing that. And the great thing is to try and get a tribe, get your own tribe of people that are willing to move forward. So if you're a marathon runner or you really want to do a a triathlon, you need to surround yourselves with the people that are going to support that cause and that they are going to be with you. They're going to, many of them train with you urge you on it's kind of the part of camaraderie of sport and it's much the same with finance too you need to establish a new benchmark of norm and surround yourself with people or convince the people you're with to see if you can sort of work out how to productively move forward in your own financial lives as well as your own physical fitness lives that's tough isn't it because not a lot of people talk about finances of course not it's almost like a subject where everyone's really hush hush about like we're not going to talk about money we're not going to talk about how much money we have or how much money we spend or anything like that we're just going to pretend that we have lots and spend lots Mm -hmm. um, and show that to people I'm curious Andrew did you how did you get into this like did you discover this or did you fall into the expat uh, kind of (laughs) traps in Singapore as well Uh, for me I'm inherently lazy and so, as you say, cycling all around the world. Yes, I am. <laughs> yeah, inherently lazy. I am inherently wow. lazy. Uh oh. I am inherently <laughs> lazy. What are we <laughs> <in trouble. laughs> 
So when I was 19, I was – so I didn't come from a back – I came from a really blue-collar background. And so nobody in my family um, ever went and did any kind of post-secondary training. Uh, so I was the first. And, and since then, my brothers, my sisters ended up also in going to college and getting degrees. But the background was definitely blue-collar. So it was, it was rather practical in a lot of ways. And so I, in one sense, I was lucky. I wasn't brought up um, with or being able to have anything and everything that I wanted. That probably would have spoiled me because I would have gotten out into the real world and I would have wanted all this stuff and I wouldn't have had the money for it. So I would have bought out credit cards and I would have gotten into debt. Yeah. And as a result of my parents' success, right? So we end up establishing what we think is a normal pattern. But anyway, back to this. Um, because my family didn't have money, uh, I always had to work for things, as most people, many people do. So if I wanted a new bicycle... Uh, if I wanted to go to college, these are things I had to be paying for on my own. So as luck would have it, I ended up working at a garage, and it was a, a, a bus maintenance garage, and I fueled transit buses. And it was a night shift type job. Well, I would work from 7 p.m. until 3 in the morning. And the other guys I worked with said, uh, there's a mechanic here who's a millionaire. And I said, no, it's impossible. Like, I, I know what you guys make. Yeah. You guys are making about $40,000 a year. That's mm. impossible. And they said, no, he's 47 years old. He has two kids, and he's a millionaire. And if he ever talks to you about money, um, you listen. And these guys were really serious yeah. with me about this. Like, they looked me right in the eye. These are guys that... These blue-collar guys that would, would, would completely slag you any moment they can. they yeah. put you down, have a good laugh. You're not looking, jabbing the ribs type yeah. thing. I mean, it was a bit of a rough-and-tumble environment. But these guys would, and there was more than one of them that said, if he ever wants to talk to you about money, you listen. So I went, yeah, all right. And I was 19, and I'm thinking, right, millionaire, whatever. And one day, uh, this guy calls me into the office the millionaire mechanic. <laughs> and he asks me, what would you do if I gave you $10,000 today? And I'm thinking, oh, my God, he's going to give me some money. <laughs> Amazing. This is, this is incredible. I've got to answer this properly. Um, and I did think about it, and I said, well, I think I would put it towards my schooling. And he said, that's acceptable as a response and later he told me that if I said that I would buy like a new car or a new stereo for my car uh, or I took was going to pay for a trip and he knew where I was at in terms of my stage of life he knew that I was a university student he said he probably wouldn't have had to talk or he wouldn't have spoken to me again unless he had to yeah so he was an odd man in that yeah. sense like he was a bit of a snob mm. in a strange way but uh, but eventually he took me under his wing um, I saw his house and then his houses and he showed me his investment portfolio and I took a real keen interest in recognizing that if I could make money work for me, I wouldn't have to work as hard for money. And so when this really appealed to my lazy streak. Mm -hmm. So you could see like a, a compound interest calculation, for example. And so he was the first one who talked to me about compound interest. And he said, okay, Andrew, if you start investing the equivalent of, say, $10 a day at age 19, and if that money makes a compound annual return of 9% per year, by the time you're 65 years old, you'll have $2.2 million on a commitment that's equal to $10 a day. 
It's like two coffee cups. Everyone can do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the actual numbers that he sort of started with at the time was he said you have to do 100 a month. Um, right. I've given you just some just some figures based on some of the talks that I've had because we've got the whole inflation component. But this was 1989, and he said to me, you've got to start investing $100 a month. And I said, I, I can't afford that. I can't afford it. And he said, knucklehead, I've seen you go to that vending machine, and I've seen you take out like a muffin and a Coca-Cola out of that on more than one occasion. Could you theoretically take out like a couple of chocolate bars and a drink every day that you're working? And I said, well, I guess, yeah, I, I guess I, I guess I could. And he said, well, do the math. Now that's $3.33 a day times 30, 31 days. That's $100 a month. And so he said to me and really impressed on me the idea that this commitment of this $3.33 a day, you know, the equivalent of that, um, $100 a month, would enable me to become a millionaire during my lifetime. And it's nothing in terms of a commitment. And he showed me some compound interest calculations and charts showing me that somebody who starts investing much later has to invest so much more. They have to work so much harder. They have to save so much more. And in that circumstance, they're not able to spend as much of their income mm -hmm. as I would if I'd started early. So this really inspired my lazy the sort of my lazy gene and it seems like also planted a seed in the back of your mind to like foster what you're doing now to really teach other people about this uh, it's, it, yeah you're right it's, it's incredibly simple so mm -hmm. and what was really cool is at one point I called him up and I had, didn't have any contact with him for years and I called him to tell him about um, some people in Cambodia that now had access to fresh water that would not have had access to fresh water. And I talked about water, waterborne illnesses with the children. And I said, do you know why these hundred families all have access to fresh water in Cambodia now? And he said, no. And I said, it's because of you. You just gave me goosebumps. <laughs> like, that's beautiful. It gives me goosebumps. Mm. It was so inspiring to be able to tell him this. And I said, you did so much for me. And then I was able to pay back, in my way, pay back some people that really needed some help. Can I just ask, for the uninitiated, what is compound interest? It's just the growth of money over time. So if you invest money, and let's say you invest $100, and it makes 10% in a given year. So now that $100 is now worth $110. But if it makes another 10%, it's not 10% on $100. Now it's 10% on $110. And so it's like a snowball. Mm -hmm. And so for those of you who have been in sort of uh, snowy environments, when you create that snowball and you start mm -hmm. to roll it, at first the gains are really small, but then the ball starts to grow um, exponentially. So that's what compound interest is. And the longer your money can grow, the, uh, the more powerful it is over time. And that, for expats, like why that's important then, essentially long-term plans uh, for finance based on a country that's not your kind of native country. We should be thinking about pension plans and those kind of things. And from what you're saying, this is sort of the appropriate way to go about it. Is that correct? Well, yeah. The first thing to do is, is to get out of debt. I mean, that's mm. the first step. I mean, this is all really quite simple in terms of like a step-by-step -step process for financial wellness. It's to track what you're spending and track what you're earning, first thing. And so it's really simple to do just with an app. So you can get an app on your phone. Um, and so every time you go and you buy anything, you buy a coffee, 
you just have an app. My wife and I use a, like a pocket expense, but you okay. could use Mint. You could use Good Budget. There's a whole variety of different apps. Okay, cool. I didn't so, know about that. Yeah, it's really, really important to treat your household like a business. Yeah. And so if we went to the coffee shop, it soon we as soon as we paid the bill, we just enter it in our phone. It takes five seconds. Mm-hmm. We don't have a, a a budget because budgets are like diets. Yeah. Uh, be, life isn't just these are our costs at all times. It's there are ups and downs. There are months that will cost more than other months. And if you have a budget, it's constraining. It, like a diet is constraining. Yeah. And so diets, studies have shown, they don't work. Over time, they don't work. Good, healthy eating habits, mm. that works. Yeah. So a good, healthy financial habit is to track what we spend. And when we track what we spend, we end up spending less. We become accountable for some of the expenses that perhaps are unnecessary. And we start to view them with our own value system. We start to say, hey, look how much I'm spending on, let's say it's, um, let's say it's eating out. Mm-hmm. And we ask ourselves, you know, a lot of these foods that we're eating out too that we're putting in our bodies aren't all that healthy and it's costing me much, much more money than I want it to. I can see now how much I'm spending on that. Yeah. Well, let's just cut back on that. So just by virtue of recording it, you'll end up being accountable and mm. you'll end up spending less, which allows you to work on debt reduction. So this is the first stage yeah. is to say, all right, then treat it like a, like a physical goal, like a, a fitness goal, mm-hmm. which is what I've done with mortgages, which, uh, which is what I've done with student loans and which I've done with, uh, with physical training. I keep a journal and you know, I write down what it is I want to achieve. And so with debt reduction, say for my mortgage or for my student loan, I wrote a number down. How much do I owe? And the shocking thing is when I ask people, how much money do you owe? A lot of people don't know. <clears throat> freaking shocked because so many people are comfortable putting their heads in the sand yeah. and not even, not even acknowledging it. And it's much like if you're going to train somebody, you have to find out their benchmark. What, whether it's rehabilitation or whether it's just you're working on physical fitness for them, where are we now? Yeah. So you always have to make an assessment of where is that person mm. physically. That's it's really important. Do you know it's some, something you said earlier that you were teaching personal finance to kids? I think so. Growing up in Australia, we never had a class like that ever. No one ever teaches you how to manage your own money. They don't teach you to be responsible for it. They don't teach you what to do with it or how to pay your taxes or anything so you go out into the world and you the only thing that you know about money is what your parents teach you Mm -hmm. and even then it can be very slim because they don't know either Mm -hmm. um so it's really interesting that that's something that you were teaching your students because man i think that's so valuable and one of the reasons that we wanted to ask you to come here is most of the the fitness professionals here in the uae are all expatriates and i'm sure everyone's got their head in the sand here or at least a, a huge majority um, so it's really yeah. enlightening and hopefully people can find some inspiration about going, okay, well, I need to, I need to take responsibility of this and I'm going to open my eyes to my own financial situation and just rather than putting my head in the sand, I'm going to take charge. So basically your first step is acknowledge what's going on, try and get out of debt. Yeah, write down what your debt is and, and actually physically write it and put it somewhere where you can see it. And 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 this is this is about pulling the head out of the sand because you can't get physically fit or financially fit with your head in sand 
You've got to pull it out. Mm-hmm. Okay? Here's where I am now. Don't get worried about where you are compared to other people. Don't get worried about the fact that you have more debt now than you did in the past. Here's where we're at. And from here, we get better. So this is the objective. So write it down. What I would do is I would put it on a piece of paper, and I put it in a cupboard just so that guests wouldn't yeah. see it. You know, mm-hmm. it comes to my, come to my home. <laughs> yeah, this that huge weird. What I, they would wonder what it was because what I did after that was it was in my cupboard where my, where my shirts were. So each morning I would open it up. There's the number. And then what I would do is I would put every month, I would write down the, the month. So here's whatever, January. How much money I put on the debt, how much I, how much I tossed to take that debt down, mm-hmm. and now what the new debt is, and so I created that snowball, yeah, you know, where it's in reverse, where I'm chipping away at it, and that when you can actually see it, it's, it's measurable. You see progress. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter that you haven't eradicated it after five or six months. Never beat yourself down. But yeah. it's like training for a marathon. You might not be ready after five or six months, mm-hmm. and that's okay. But you are going to be better than you were previously. You're making progress towards what that goal is. So this is something that I recommend everybody do that has debt. And to clear that debt, then to get uh, a safety buffer. So even setting up a separate account, an account that you don't use day to day, and putting three months worth of living expenses in that. And so that's your emergency fund in case something goes wrong. That's not your holiday fund. Yeah. Right? That's your emergency fund. It's not your I want some yeah. shoes it fund. It is not. That yeah. is not your I want some shoes fund. Yeah. Um, keep that aside. That's your emergency fund. And then once you have that, you've cleared your high interest debts. And I'm not talking about a mortgage as high interest debt. I'm talking about like credit card credit debt, card, yeah. sometimes student loan debt. But once that's cleared out of the way, and then you have three months of living expenses, and that's somewhere that you're not going to be touching it it's not Mm. in your regular account yeah i always find it's really valuable this is valuable for me i have an account that has no card that has no checkbook that has nothing so the only way i can get money out of it is i physically have to go and i think that's the best thing because otherwise like it's like oh i'll use this card today it's so good not to have a card for it i've been doing that for a long time (laughs) no card (laughs) perfect yeah (laughs) That's such a good idea. Then once you're in that position where you have mm. those three months worth of living, that three months worth of living expenses, um, then you can start saving and investing for your future. So you think that quick, yeah? After with that little amount, say, you don't need a huge budget to start investing. No, I think just clear the, the high debts sure. or the, the debts that charge high interest, um, put three months worth of living expenses away, and then get started and invest every single month. And then, of course, one of the reasons why demand for my talks are so high, uh, especially in this part of the world, is that here in the UAE, expats typically get convinced to buy Mm -hmm. the world's worst financial products. And so here's another level to this whole thing. People will think, all right, well then, great. I've done what Andrew says. Yeah, I'm doing that. Debt. I've got my three months worth of living expenses. And whoa, I've just met this fabulous guy at the golf course. And he says he can help me invest my money. My recommendation is don't, don't, don't. So the people that will be convincing you to invest in investment schemes, the people that live in this region, that will be convincing you to sell or to, to invest in these financial products 
are those that are on massive commissions to sell products that will not make you money at all. And so when I say they won't make you money, I have yet to see I listed a series of firms. And this is this is your book here. I'll leave this book here at the front just so people can see it as you're talking. Yeah, I mean, I tell the horror stories within the book, but the people that sell these products are always going to be charismatic. They're usually from the UK, often good-looking. They'll be wearing their nice clothing. They look like they're successful. They'll sound like they're successful. They'll learn your um, your interests. They'll take you out and play free rounds of golf sometimes with you. Often what they'll do is they'll offer you even something like a free trip to the Maldives. I've seen that here in Dubai where somebody says, hey, uh, give me the names of 10 of your friends because cold calling is legal in the UAE. And I'm really glad it is. It's illegal. It's illegal. Yeah, however, yeah, I, I know. Cold text messages I, yeah. I know. And the cold calls yeah, keep coming too. They do. And so they'll often say, well, I got your name from a friend. And sometimes or they LinkedIn, did. actually. I've been called by a lot of those financial people and I'm like, no, leave me alone, please. Right. Um, but yeah, they still do it. They, they do. They still do it. And... Uh, and it's not good to get into bed with these products. But these people are incredible. So if you've bought one, I mean, the thing I try to tell people is don't feel badly. Don't beat yourself up because I think most um, most expats who are actually investing in uh, a structured savings scheme in the UAE actually have these particular products. These people that sell them are incredibly charismatic and they are incredibly successful at selling these things. But we don't want to be buying them. Yeah. So we want to be investing effectively such that we benefit from the investments that we make. The salesperson doesn't benefit and their mm. serve their their provider doesn't isn't the primary beneficiary of our hard earned money. So that's why uh, I ended up writing this book. It was it was an inter- it's an interesting story with this and I think I might have explained a, a piece of it l- the other night is that in that I wrote a book called Millionaire Teacher in 2011. And I I did a second edition of that in 2017, but it became an international bestseller. And it talked about investing effectively using this same methodology that's in this book, Millionaire Expat. And when it became an international bestseller, the, the, the publisher wanted me to brand, they wanted to brand the whole thing. They said, let's write Millionaire Teacher for women, millionaire teacher for retirees, millionaire mm-hmm. teacher for dogs and cats. I mean, anything and everything they wanted to brand um, because it was a huge seller in the United States and then globally. But I said to them, I kept putting it off and saying, no, I, I don't really want to write another book. I'm happy with my day job, loving that. But then eventually I came to them and said, there's a one group I really, really feel I need to help, and that's expatriates because they typically buy the most horrific financial savings schemes sold by the most horrific sharks Mm. and my publisher said well that's crazy to consider writing a book that deals with such a niche audience when you've already got this really strong international and especially an american platform Mm. which is our biggest the biggest market in the world and i just said no no the, the expats really need this because mm-hmm. well, there's no book. You were an expat as well, so you understand exactly. the pitfalls. Maybe you can explain to people what are some of the pitfalls of being an expat and what can happen if... Yeah, that's. I think that's the maybe the first question. I was going to ask you as well. Um, let's go with that first. <laughs> <laughs> what, the pitfalls to being an expat? Yeah, Other than yeah. the excessive spending? Yeah. Other than the financial products? Mm. 
What are the other pitfalls? Well, like if if expats don't invest mm. and they don't take charge of mm. their financial health, because here this country and this region is full of expats. Everyone I know is an expat here. The the UAE local population is so small here it makes up 10 20 percent of the total population so we're talking about millions of people living within the uae who are all expatriates and i'm sure a huge chunk of them have not started to do any of this right if you stay if you stay home if you don't become an expatriate you're contributing to your home country's social platforms and because you're contributing to those social platforms those social platforms will help you so when you're retired, you're going to be getting money back from the government. And it might even be an employer that helps you if you're Australian. They're also helped by matching a component to something like superannuation. So not only are you going to be getting some kind of state pension, but you should be getting something in the form of superannuation. This is the cultural norm in Australia. Mm-hmm. If you're in the United Kingdom, um, they're much the same. You're contributing to your state pension plan. Mm-hmm. You will get something when you retire. In many cases, there are corporations will also, especially if you work for the government, will be giving you a defined benefit pension plan as well. So that's sort of a guaranteed monthly, as guaranteed as it can get, but a, a promise as a guaranteed monthly sort of income upon a certain age. But as expatriates, we're freelancers. Yeah. We're, we're on our own. And so what many expats do is they think, well, I'm saving more than my friend back in the UK or in, in Australia might be saving double what they're saving, so I'm doing really well. Generally, no. Generally, expats, when they retire back to their home countries, end up with less disposable income than the people they left behind. Because they didn't invest. Because they didn't invest enough. They either didn't invest or they didn't invest enough. And so those social platforms at home, they have real significant value. So if you're going to be getting money from a state pension back home because you've been contributing to it, um, that's worth a lot of money. You're going to need to have quite a bit of money in either rental property income or a stock and bond market investment portfolio just to equal that the the income benefits that mm-hmm. something like a state pension will provide. So we take huge risks when we come abroad, and we often get, as I mentioned in the very beginning, surrounded by a really unhealthy norm of like a spending affliction. So there are two things that are hammering expats um, those two factors yeah yeah especially in a country where you uh you're not taxed on your income so all Mm -hmm. that money goes into your bank account and then you've got that little bit extra to spend Mm -hmm. instead of taking a chunk aside and saying right this is going to be my own pension future right yeah i think what happens here is that that extra chunk goes to like (laughs) more spending yeah the city yeah Yeah. i call it expat itis Okay, so mm. ex- yeah. so I used to have. So you don't feel the have a little expatitis. <laughs> you don't want expatitis. You know, We're it's not as uh, initially. It's not as painful as like arthritis or colitis, but yeah. eventually it it comes to it seriously wreck you. Yeah. So, what are the main kind of take homes from the book? Like, what what's what's the kind of the book summary of that? It's to make a plan from to recognize how how much do you actually need to live on. So this is the first part, is to say, hey, if you were actually retired today, how much money would you need to be living on? And we ought to be able to come up with a reasonable guesstimate. And if we haven't, we've got our heads in the sand. We've got to start saying, all right, what is life costing me? And what would life cost me if I chose to live in Thailand and retire there instead of a place like Dubai 
or in Melbourne, Australia. Yeah, do you know what's interesting? Sorry to interrupt you there. I was reading your blog and uh, you were having, as a part of your website, there's a section about expats living abroad and you had some sections about people uh, living in Vietnam and Mm -hmm. the discussion that was going on there, which was really interesting to read because a lot of people don't think about, oh, retiring in a different country. Right. That's a lot cheaper and a lot more affordable. And when I was reading that, there were so many people that were choosing to retire in a different country because the cost of living was so much less and their money was worth so much more right. so that's quite an interesting concept it is especially for people that feel that they've left it too late i was going to say is that yeah. because people want to live in vietnam or is that because people look at their personal finances and go i can't afford to move back to the u.s or to the to, to the uk a bit of both i must go to vietnam yeah i think a bit of both because as expats we tend to have a bit of an adventurous spirit as well so we like to travel we like to see and embrace different cultures we're not living in our home country as it is yeah so i think it's it's a little bit of both we've met people in mexico for example that they're retired there because that's something that they could afford and they couldn't ordinarily afford to be retired in a place like say the uk or the united states or at least not enjoy the same level of lifestyle but we've also met really wealthy say americans that choose they just love the culture of mexico and so you know, there, there are really two reasons here for people doing that. But to, to get back to that idea of what's our goal, figure out how much it is that you want to be spending if you were re- retired today. And then in my book, I talk about indexing that to inflation. So figure out, okay, if you're going to be retired in 20, 25 years' time, and you compound that, and I do show how to compound that, and show how do you compound that out at a historical rate of inflation, what would that be equivalent to then? And then how much money do you actually need in terms of it might be rental properties or a stock and bond market investment portfolio such that the investments, whether they're real estate or whether they're investment portfolio, such that they can generate enough cash flow for you to be financially independent. So I think, too, one of the, one of the things that's important to recognize is that many people don't just sit on their butts once they're retired. So here's a good part of it, too, in that, I think financial freedom is just that. It's financial freedom. You have a choice to continue to earn some income and feel productive, do something. You might continue to do some personal training just for kicks, but you might decide that you're going to work eight hours a week instead of working 40 hours a week. But financial freedom or financial independence just gives us that freedom to choose whether we're going to work and when and how and how often. But you've got to set a plan. It's like anything. You know, if you're going to college and you want a specific degree, well, let's unpack this and figure out what courses <coughs> you have to take <coughs> to receive this degree. Excuse me. Sorry. And, and so it doesn't make sense not to do that if you have that goal. Likewise, a fitness goal. You want to run a marathon. All right, well, let's unpack this. How are you going to do that? Yeah. What kind of running do you need to do? It doesn't just happen by osmosis. You don't just wake up one day with the ability to run a marathon. But thinking that we can one day retire and spend this money in perpetuity uh, is like having that head in the sand as well without making that plan. It's a complete delusion. And it ends up being really, really painful for the people that don't make the plan. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when I first moved over to Dubai, a friend of mine, I was, I was talking to his dad who lives here, and he, he told me, you know, you need to, he kind of gave me the rundown, you need to invest in your future, you need to set up these things. And he spoke to me about a conversation that I just had to smile and knock because I didn't understand any of it. I didn't know... I got the gist of it that I need to plan because I don't have a, a good pension being if I stay and live and work here. 
and it's always been in the back of my mind that that's the case and I should I should find a way to 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 focus on it and to plan for it so I, I'm looking forward to the book I've I've bought your book I know you have a couple of copies here because I've got Amazon yeah. is delivering one to me I I <laughs> bought your book as well I'm so yeah. excited to read it yeah yeah I do you know what I like about it um, a lot of the financial books that I've read in the past make it really complicated. Right. And so you <laughs> yeah. listen to some of the jargon and some of the conversation. And I like I would love to take hold of my financial like uh, future, but I have no idea what they're talking about. And it's really hard. And when I was flicking through and after listening to your lecture the other day, I think you make it such a step-by-step guide. Right. So that everybody can understand. So that it's not like... Uh, like jargon that people don't understand so they can never get into it. And that's what's really lovely about it. You make it very transparent. So I think um, I think people need to get a hold of this. Yeah, one of the things that you mentioned, and after the talk when we were standing around in, in, the, in the garden where you had it, people were discussing how, you know, if the stocks rise and fall, rise and fall, rise and fall, over a longer term, mm-hmm. it inherently, or it, it more often than not, rises so not to panic and not to not to get stuck in the kind of the buy sell buy sell just just kind of stay right. the road right so i'm because what, what, what did uh, one of the guys said that the when they did a a long-term study or they looked at it now i don't know i'm just reciting what someone said they found the people that did best were people that forgot their login details and people that had passed away that's correct and they just hadn't gone they mm. hadn't read the sc- I was going to say the scores they hadn't read the stock that's correct yeah. and sold well it's yeah. interesting someone we were talking to as well after was like I check it every day <laughs> and Steve was saying recipe, stop stop recipe for disaster <laughs> for emotional disaster yeah so I, I, I couldn't tell you what and, and, and you're the viewers here are going to think this sounds incredibly irresponsible but I, I couldn't tell you what my account's worth if you asked me, I couldn't get within a couple hundred thousand dollars of it. Mm. I might be able to get within maybe $250,000 of it. And I'm not like a billionaire, right? So um, it's interesting yeah. in that I, I'm not looking at it and I don't know what the markets do day to day. And ultimately, it's best that I not know. So this process, the investment process that I talk about in here, it's the investment process that Warren Buffett would recommend if you were to ask him, if you were your uncle. Um, if you asked a Nobel Prize winner in economics and said, hey, I want to invest and I want to spend like an hour a year thinking about my money. I don't want to spend any more time than that. I don't, don't want to watch the, the business news. I don't want to read the Wall Street Journal. Um, and I get it. You'd rather be outside yeah. doing stuff. Yeah, living your life. Do you know what yeah. I love so much about this whole thing is, and I get this entirely from you as well, is that you actually really want to make people you want to actually really help people. You want to help people take hold of their financial future. And that's really, really inspiring. And it makes it, it's, it's amazing. Really amazing. So kudos to you. What I'd be, what I'd be <laughs> afraid of, of happening to me is, so I've played fantasy football as an example, okay, <laughs> where part of this strategy is you, you kind of, you guess what's going to happen on the on the pitch. Do you, do you familiar with fancy football? Where no, you, not at so, all. So take the English Premier League yeah. games every weekend, and 
at the start of the week, I pick 11 players right, right. I think are from all different teams that I think are going to perform well in their individual games. And you call it fantasy football. It's like a football pool, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Or, or yeah. there's a fantasy baseball and there's right, a fantasy, right. fantasy football. It's basically yeah. so grown-up men who don't play football can, <laughs> can yeah, play right. football. Well, My no. player got three points yes. last night. <laughs> well, this is, you're not wrong, but it's more so, so grown-up men yeah. who are amateur quarterbacks mm-hmm. can act like they're experts right 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 oh (laughs) i can predict so this team this top team is playing this lower team Mm -hmm. i'm going to get this main striker because i know he's going to do really well he does really well you turn around to the boys yeah and you're in the league with all your friends he Mm. turns around after the weekend go yes you know i'm winning but then you can get bogged down because the way they have it you can get bogged down in the minutiae of the value of a player goes up value of a player goes down Your, your team has a financial value that you can buy and sell players right and at a time when I had too much time on my hands, I would bury my head in the stats and I would get stuck in and I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd go deep into it. It's pointless. It's valueless. Way too much time. Yeah, no, it definitely is. It definitely is. And it didn't help you. I ended up doing, doing in our little league of all my friends back, back in Ireland. Uh, the, the first year we did it, I ended up finishing on top. Right, right. The next year, I was I, 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 don't, I can't do that again. It was too long. It was too much effort. But I'd be afraid of suddenly I'm the guy in the gym looking at the screen CNN the Nasdaqs yeah. fl- fl- and I don't right now if I looked at that I couldn't tell you what any of that means um, I'm glad but if I was you don't to, need to but if I was to start putting $100 a month into an account yeah. would I need to know then I mean what you're saying is stay away from all that and just, just stay the road yeah you build you build what I talk about in my book is a diversified portfolio of global index funds and over time this portfolio will do this it will rise dips a little bit up up little dips up big dip up but it's the long term that we're interested in and the short term is just there to sucker you like the news media is there to freak you out so news media gets its money from advertising and if they can scare you they will draw your eyeballs to that particular story or that piece of news Mm. if they can draw more eyeballs they can draw more advertising money so the media is not out there to inform you about the markets the media is there to scare the living daylights out of you or to perpetuate some kind of greed to tell you about something that's just risen a thousand percent bitcoin which can convince you to do something silly yeah (laughs) so the the people that make the most money when we do studies on brokerage accounts are people that do no trading at all. Well, Fidelity did that study to see which of its investors did best. And it was the investors that were dead or had forgotten they had an account with Fidelity. Most people will muss around. They'll be afraid. They'll speculate. They'll have money and they'll be afraid to invest it right now because they think market will drop. Um, people will always think the market's going to drop. And at some point, it does. But nobody can ever predict it. Yeah. So Warren Buffett himself says market forecasters exist to make fortune tellers look good. And he's the greatest stock picker or greatest in, uh, stock market investor in history. And he says he has no idea what the stock market's going to do next year, this month, this week, or the year after that. And he says if anyone tries to tell you otherwise or to tell you they know, you run from those people. Don't walk from those people. Mm-hmm. You've got a charlatan you're talking to. And that charlatan might be on CNBC, pretending that they know where things are going. Forget it. You invest in a diversified portfolio of low-cost indexes. You Which add I assume m- you explain in the book. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, it allows you to own the entire stock market. So it's not about you picking an individual share. 
It's not about you picking shares in, in, in a specific country. It's about you owning a representation of all shares in every country with no trading whatsoever. So peer-reviewed academic studies, Nobel Prize winners in economics, people like Warren Buffett will tell you that if you have the discipline to buy that particular product, and that's all you need, and you keep adding money every single month, you will end up growing your fortune over time. What was the analogy that you used about people who use like the last few years of uh, levels of the stock to predict the next few? You had some. I can't remember if you if you know. You Crazy. Had, you had an analogy which which was quite. <laughs> it was a graph. It was the graph about the companies that did the best, the stocks that did the best over one year period, and then the next year, the next hundred companies that also did the best. And I mm. think in the graph that you demonstrated, it showed that every year no one could really predict because none of the companies were in the top 100 right, again. Right, right. Or very few. It was a very low percentage. I think it teetered from 0% to 3 to 2 to 3. So it was a very low, low percentage of companies that were continually yeah. in the top 100 year after year. And they weren't companies, but they were actively managed unit trusts or known okay. as actively managed mutual funds. So they were professional fund managers. Each of those really, each fund represents a professional fund manager or a team. And what they do is they buy and sell shares of companies and they try to ensure that through their trading, they make profits that in turn will benefit the people that buy those specific mutual funds or unit trusts. And when we look at the top performing mutual funds, let's say you take the top 100 in any given year, the likelihood of any of those funds being in the top 100 again the following year is extremely remote. So instead of trying to pick mutual funds that have had a good recent performance, the best statistical odds of success come from buying a low-cost global index fund, such as what I talk in my book, where no trading takes place. So within an index fund, you virtually will own about 7,500 shares of companies spread all over the world, and you just own them all within one fund, and that fund you continue to add money to grows in proportion to the global markets over time. It's all very interesting. It's something that I know nothing about. I'm looking forward to you. But well, my dad is a finance. My dad is an We are going to learn. Yeah. That's our goal. Yeah, good. It's not difficult. It's really simple. So the industry tries to make it seem difficult. Yeah. And so when I wrote Millionaire Teacher and I wrote this book, I knew that we don't learn this in school. And so I started at ground zero. Like, you really do not have to know anything about investing. In fact, sometimes it's better off that you don't know anything about investing. It's like training a tennis player. I've been told that you know, tennis coaches will say they love, like, blank slate. Yeah. Because then they can teach proper form mm -hmm. versus someone who's been hacking away for four or five years and they've got really bad habits. It's like in the, in the fitness industry, there's a lot of people who are just like, I don't want to know why I'm eating this food. Just tell me what to eat. Tell mm. me what to have for breakfast, what to have for lunch, what to have for dinner. Right, right. And that's a success for some people and, and it's a failure for others. But there right. is a population <laughs> out there who just like, I don't need to know. I have too right. much on my mind. Right. If you just give me a list of foods, I'm, mm. I'll eat that. Right. What's what's interesting though about the financial sector is that they do something very similar to the medical sector. They take very 
basic terms and find a really complex word for it <laughs> and then put it out there. Like I remember, so I have a, a BA well. yeah, right. in <laughs> medical science and I remember <laughs> at university learning like cell apopt- apoptosis. It's like it, the cell dies. Just say the cell, cell dies. dies. That, <laughs> that's it. It's cell death. Why do you need to find the most complex word that's so hard to pronounce to define this one aspect? And it's, <laughs> it literally is so that people don't understand. Hematoma. Yeah. Bruise. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. Yeah, spot on. Exactly. And it's all over the the medical industry. And I think the financial sector does the same thing. So it discourages people from from learning and from understanding. You have to learn the language first, don't you? You have to learn. Well, also, speaking of that, yoga do the same. Yoga have have their language. No, but the the difference (laughs) is is that yoga comes from India and the language that it originated from was Sanskrit. And so when you actually learn yoga, you're learning Sanskrit. So it's a a bit different. It's not like like Western people then retranslate it to to Sanskrit and then back. It's it's a bit different to that. So I got you there. (laughs) I say we just call it downward dog. Yeah. Yeah. Right? What's the yoga term for downward dog? Uh... Aramuka Salasana. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, same <laughs> thing, Chaturanga. right? Same thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it originated. That was its original term. Right. We've translated it, so it's, yeah. it's a bit different. Don't go. <laughs> I'm not. I like yoga. I wonder what the Greek word is for bruise. Hematoma. <laughs> yeah. I bet it's close. I bet there's some kind of Latin Greek with hematoma. I bet yeah. there's Latin Greek. There origin. must be some crossover. So I love simplifying, even with yoga. Yeah. Downward dog. Yeah. yeah, just do downward dog. Downward dog. Chaturanga. <laughs> Savasana. All yeah. those funny ones. So it's so like lay down on your back. Yeah. <laughs> just uh, lay down. Just lie down and go to sleep. <laughs> yeah. That's the best bit. Yeah. Um, so do you do you do that in your book? Do you make um or do you help people understand some of this jargon, some mm-hmm. of this terminology? Yeah, I do. Taking it from the very beginning and making it make sense, assuming that uh, and I, I believe probably a 14-year-old could read and understand this book. If you open it up, I mean, That's it's linear. But if you open it just midway through, there are going to be little things that might confuse you. But those things are all explained early on. And so to keep it as simple as possible is essential because it is simple. Mm-hmm. It's not complicated. And to recognize that the people that sell these financial products here in the UAE they don't have financial training. They have sales training. Right. And so don't get intimidated by them. You read half of one chapter here. You will know more about investing than many of the people selling these financial products in the UAE because they're not qualified to build globally responsible portfolios. What they're qualified to do is to separate you from your money and convince you to buy into their products so that they can make massive commissions. Yeah. So I have another question for you. Um, a lot of people uh, assume that in order to start investing, you need to have a lot of money to do that to start with. Mm-hmm. Is that the the case or is that just a myth? That's just a myth. Okay. So how much, if, if say somebody in the fitness industry took all of your advice and was going to start to get out of debt mm-hmm. and then start to save three months of their salary in a little side nest egg Mm -hmm. and then they wanted to invest how much money would you say that people would need to start contributing obviously you said there's a lump sum and then there's uh, monthly contributions towards this investment so so people don't feel discouraged how much money do they actually need to start i think if you start with something like you have a two thousand dollar lump sum that's great that's really reasonable yeah and 
yeah do you not think so yeah, yeah. like most people will say oh to invest like you need fifty thousand dollars or like a huge mm-hmm. lump sum and that discourages people a lot particularly in yeah. this industry well who who has fifty thousand dollars when they start i i certainly didn't and in canada it was even easier in that i only needed a hundred dollars to start so oh. as an expatriate, I explain what brokerages you can use and what makes sense. So you you could start with less than $2,000, but I think 2000 is a nice sum mm-hmm. to invest or to start with because you'll pay a bit of a commission when you make a purchase as well. So let's say your purchase or commission is $10 for an actual purchase and you're starting with $100. Well, you're giving up 10%. Yeah. So that's why I like to think, well, maybe $2,000 to start. That's a good place to begin. And then each time you add a bit of money, you can wait until perhaps you have another 1000 or 2000 and then make another purchase. You'd recommend doing it monthly? Yeah, if you can afford that. Yeah, yeah and other, otherwise you can do it quarterly. But I would say that it's best to ensure that your the amount, the, there will be a commission to, pay, to make these low-cost purchases. And so those commis- that commission might be... A, 10 or $15 commission, let's say. So make sure that you have enough money such that the commission isn't a huge part of what you're actually investing. Don't get caught by the financial sales products that are sold here that will say you need as little as $100 and there's no commission because the hidden fees are the most substantial. And you also talked about buyout fees or yeah. withdrawal fees. Well, they're really crafty. If you buy one of these structured savings schemes that are most typically sold here, they've pay a massive commission up front to the person that sold you the product. And so because of that, the, the, the fund provider, the company, will try to ensure that they keep your money with them as long as possible so that they can recoup the money they paid the salesperson for getting you into the product. And so as a result of that, if you try to get in or get out after one year or after two years, you'll lose your money. They won't give you any. So um, they'll keep it as a penalty. And they have a, a really stiff penalizing table. Right. Um, and, and in most cases, when you do the math on it, 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 the best thing to do is just cut your losses, get out, pay the penalty, and then invest the money responsibly instead of leaving it in and letting it be bled by fees or even worse, continuing to contribute more money to it. Because over time, you're going to pay high internal hidden fees on that, which will make loads of profits for the company. But based on the fee structure, you're not going to beat inflation over time. And just treat it as a a somewhat expensive education. And then get out of the platform and start to to build a portfolio that's low cost that over time will actually make money for you. That's good advice. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to reading the book. Um, It's called Millionaire Expat. Yeah, me too. Do you know what I was thinking before? Um, It's really sad to hear that these products exist. And what's not so nice about it is that this is really people's people's health. It's their future. It's their livelihood. It's their families. It's their happiness. So it's... It's in everyone's interest to really get their head out of the sand and be responsible when it comes to their physical health, their mental health, as you were saying before, sleep and their financial health. Mm -hmm. Um, All of that will encompass somebody being much happier and not just as an individual but as a community. Right. Expat community. (laughs) Right. So, um, yeah, like I said, the millionaire expat – how to build wealth living overseas. Um, what what websites or what other resources would you advise people read up on or consult or join groups? 
You know, when I travel, many people really like Mr. Money Mustache. <laughs> people ask me all over the world, hey, so um, do you read Mr. Money Mustache? Uh, he's a guy that uh, in the U.S. who sort of turned his back to the high consumption lifestyle, retired early, so gained financial freedom at a fairly young age, and he writes a blog and he talks about it, so the cost of uh, the to- the cost of consumption and how to invest effectively. So it seems to, it seems that he inspires a lot of people. Yeah. So why not check him out? Yeah. Uh, I write on my blog site at andrewhelm.com. It's not as easy to remember, but I publish weekly stories there. And so there's that as a resource. I've also listed a wide variety of books. My book doesn't say anything that's different to how a variety of other books. I mean, there are hundreds of books that have the exact same message as my book. Sure. Hundreds of books. So when I published Millionaire Teacher, for example, my publishers asked me, okay, so what is it that's different about your book? Why would we publish this when there are hundreds of them that have said exactly the same thing? And I said, I've removed the jargon. And I've made it interesting and fun. Easy. And it's also your story um, because a lot of what's different about – so I've read some of these books as well and they come from um, huge, huge people with massive personas and a huge – uh, amount of wealth and what's interesting about your story it's you're just a normal person and yeah. so it also inspires other people who are just normal as well to really take hold of their financial future mm-hmm. the fact that you're a teacher that you're uh were earning a, a salary that's normal to a lot of other people and that's the huge difference so a lot of time you might have uh someone like what's his name oh I can't think of his name. Anyway, you might have somebody in a huge financial position that's able to write and give advice, but they're able to invest huge lumps of, of money right. instead. So this is what's nice, and I think what's different about your story. It's mm. it's you. It's yeah. your story. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, thanks for coming to speak to us. Um, it's been a real lesson for me anyway. Well, hopefully... When are you back in town again? Any time? I don't know. Time soon? I don't know. So what we do is... Uh, we sit and we wait for emails. We don't sit and wait for them. We travel around so our van. We do our box. life. Yeah. yeah, emails come in and people ask, hey, can you come speak at our business? And so we'll sort of corral those requests into a, a four or five week period and within a, a region that we can hit during that time sure. frame. And then we'll come and give a variety of talks, whether it's international schools or businesses. And uh, so I don't know when at this point. So we have a number of people that would like us to come and talk. But we'll wait to see uh, when we can put that all together. But, yeah, we'll be back. We'll probably be back here. Um, yeah, I usually come a, at least a couple of times a year. Okay, awesome. Amazing. Well, hopefully by the time you come back, we have a small little investment portfolio. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've at least read the book. That's the first step. <laughs> yeah. That's our goal. We can talk about that again. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. So we can. okay, so isn't that a good plan? Yeah, so, yeah it's so a great plan. Are you, are you guys willing to be like really public about where you're at, where yeah. your benchmark is? Yeah. Well, so we the metaphorical equivalent of how many push-ups can you do at this point <laughs> okay. with your current <laughs> body mass okay. index? And then move forward. Yeah. 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 Well, so we, had, um, we had Steve. He was like putting us on the psychology chat the other <laughs> week. So absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So what's the target then, coach? The, t- the target? Yeah. yeah. The target. <laughs> the first target. The target is for you to define where you are right now. Okay. So you'd be able to, oh, Steve <laughs> talked about it as net worth. Um, and of course, that could be a negative figure if you've got debts. But where are you at right now? in terms of how much money you actually have when you take your assets minus mm-hmm. your liabilities. So that's your net worth. And so to figure out where you're at right now with your net worth, 
And then, you know, when I come back, if we chat sort of a year from now, what kind of progress have we made? Amazing. Okay. Yeah. Right. It's a deal. All right. Let's do it. <laughs> cool. Well. Andrew, All thank right. you so much for coming on today. We really appreciate yeah, it. it. Awesome. Thank you for your time you're and welcome. for the inspiring, inspiring information. Yeah, you're mm-hmm. welcome. Buy the book, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> bye bye. Bye bye.